curious what you all set your thermostats at in your house, okay? Who's above 75 degrees this time of year? You said it. Okay. <laughs> well, who's above 76? 77? 78? What, what, what do you do, bro? 78. Wow. So I'll be wearing a tank and shorts when I come to your house. Uh, who sets it at 70 or lower? All right. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Uh, for those of you that are married, how many of you, you and your spouse, disagree what the temperature should be set at? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's my wife and I. So I figured out the solution because my preferred temperature during the day is 70 and the nighttime is 68. <laughs> and uh, in the wintertime, if it's just me, I will set it at about 58 and we sleep with the window cracked open. But so the way I resolve that with my wife, who's very different, is uh, one, we have a king size bed and it's like a dual control so she can set hers on th thermos, you know, the temperature of the sun and I can have, like, no covers on at all. And I also got her a heated throw for her side of the couch so that I can be comfortable and she can be comfortable. Uh, of course, the joke is that at this stage of life, especially my wife, like, she'll be freezing when she goes to bed, but at about 1 in the morning, I'll get up to go to the bathroom, and she'll be, like, sprawled out on top of the covers because, you know, there's just that whole, ladies, I'm so sorry that you have to go through that. That just looks horrible. Well, the reason why I just bring that up is because as we've been, we started talking about before Father's Day is like definitely this is one of those things that we can feel very personal about because our comfort for us as humans, especially as Americans, like we place comfort like really high. We take that personally and we're talking about things that are personal. Now one of the things, how to make things personal and what is personal and one of my favorite things that we do around here at New Life is when people go public with their faith in baptism, which is a sacrament, or basically it's, it's somebody publicly declaring that they put their faith in Jesus, we have people share their stories when they do that. And some of you were here the last time we did that, and so you got to hear glimpses of these stories, pieces of these stories. And I'll be listening, and I find myself getting emotional, especially four weeks ago when we had Will Barnes, and he was in the, in the water in front of me, and then I looked over on the front row, and uh, there was his, one of his little girls, and she's like blowing him kisses to encourage him and support him. Or Alex, after she was baptized, and she's dripping wet, and having one of her best friends come, who had come to cheer her on, immediately coming and didn't care that she was all wet and just embracing, and now they're both wet. And when people are sharing their story, what they're sharing is they're sharing about how faith, how faith became personal for them. How Jesus and how God have intersected in their life in a personal way. And this is the very thing that we're talking about in this two-part conversation of it's personal. And what we said is that personal matters matter more. That things that we don't feel per a personal connection to, honestly, we just lose interest in. We distance ourselves from those things. And when it comes to faith, as we learned in part one, we must personalize or perish. That we don't personalize our faith and make it more than just intellectual or heady, or I just believe some things, our faith will ultimately become lifeless, uneventful, and boring. And for some of you, if we were talking over coffee, you'd say that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And then the funny thing is, I've been doing this long enough that I've witnessed for a lot of people, a percentage of people, to they end up pointing the finger at their pastor or at the church instead of looking in the mirror. 
And so they go, you know what, the problem is I just need to change churches. That's the problem. So they pack up and they go to another church, but the problem is wherever you go, there you are. And, 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 and it's only a matter of time before suddenly a lot of these same feelings begin popping up. And before long, they've developed a track record of just every few years of finding themselves dissatisfied with the church and thinking that what will fix these feelings of dissatisfaction is a new church, rather than admitting that the common denominator might be found in the mirror. And like people I've known becoming dissatisfied with a marriage, rather than looking in the mirror, they go, I married the wrong person. I need a new person. And while there are cha- times to change a church, church, usually the reason our faith is lifeless or uneventful or boring is because, quite honestly, we're just pretty comfortable. I mean, most of us, we're, we're pretty comfortable. We're, I mean, and when we're most comfortable, we're most unaware. It, like I said, it, I mean, if your home is just the right temperature, you don't really notice. But if one of the other people in your house, suddenly you feel something, you know somebody has messed with it, you beca- and it becomes personal. Uh, or have the AC go out in August in Wichita, Kansas. Or have the furnace go out in January, and suddenly that HVAC unit that you don't think about that much, it becomes very personal, and you begin to give a lot of attention to it. And for the most of us, it isn't that our life is perfect, but for, the, for most of us, it's, life's just really not that bad. I mean, we have roofs over our head, we have climate control, we have hot water, we have a steady paycheck, and even though the price of gas and everything has kind of put a a pinch or stress on the budget, for the most part, for most of us, we're okay. We're pretty okay. And it's in those seasons that we're least aware of our dependence on God. And you're you're not alone. In the Old Testament text of Deuteronomy, Moses, he's given the Israelites God's law, and then he gives them this warning that in the very near future... God is going to bring them into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley and vines and figs, pomegranates, olive oil, honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. So this this awesome, awesome scenario that God is getting ready to take them into. And then he gives them this warning. He says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, Make sure you praise the Lord your God for the good land that He has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, His decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and you have all that you have is multiplied, then what will happen is your heart will become proud if you don't keep this in check. And you'll forget the Lord your God, who was the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Even 3,400 years ago, Moses was smart enough to know that when we are most comfortable, we are least aware of our dependence on God. I'll read it the way C.S. Lewis put it with some English spin on it back during World War II. He wrote, my own experience is something like this. I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen, godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with friends for the morrow, or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or a headline in the newspaper that threatens us all with destruction sends the whole pack of cards tumbling down. 
At first, I'm overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, that my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed. And for a day or two, I become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right source. I mean, let's just be honest. For us, a challenge or tragedy comes our way, we suddenly become really good Christians. We say, man, we are praying, we are reading Scripture, and it's like we start, God, we bargain with God, like, God, I'll stop sinning, I'll stop doing this, I'll do this, I'll do that, if you'll, you'll help me with this. We start praying more, more surrendered. But the moment that the thread is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys, and I'm even anxious, God forgive me, to banish from my mind the only thing that supported me under the threat because it is now associated with the misery of those few days. Thus the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. God has me but for 48 hours, and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me. Let him but sheathe that sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy. When the hated bath is over, I shake myself dry as I can, and I race off to, my, to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. So today, I want to talk about something that in a lot of ways can make or break what we experience in an actual relationship with God. It can bring us really, really close and make it really personal to us, or it can also be, be the thing that makes us feel really, really far away and distant or totally impersonal. And it's about this idea and this discipline of prayer. Because when we're facing discomfort or pain or fear or loss, suddenly we pray more than normal, don't we? We just do. Because something very personal is happening in our life. And even though we've been ignoring God or ignoring our faith for the most part, just living our day-to-day -day lives, discomfort or trials quickly remind us of how much we want God to be involved in our day-to-day -day life and in our situation. And I imagine for many of us, probably, you remember some prayer that you memorized early on in childhood if you grew up in church. For, for me, one of my earliest prayer memories is with my grandmother, uh, growing up, I would stay for a few weeks with my grandparents for the summer, which I loved. Uh, you may or may not have heard a version of this. Uh, she would kneel down by my bed at night, and she would have me pray this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And, and, and I remember my grandmother playing, praying this with me before I'd go to sleep. And now, though, as an adult, I look back on it, and I kind of think, okay, there was probably some better things for a 10-year-old to be thinking about than potentially dying in the middle of the night. I mean, their, old, their house was old and scary and creaky and creepy closets, and I was scared of the monsters in the closets, and now I get to think about potentially dying tonight, so that's awesome. Uh, then there was another one at the dinner table. You know, God is good, God is great, let us thank Him for this food, amen. And this would be repeated over and over again, but, and it didn't necessarily inspire me to pray in other ways. And honestly, prayer can be a mysterious thing. I mean, let's just be real. It's kind of weird. I, I, I mean, for starters, we're talking to an invisible God, okay? Nearly all of us learned about prayer when we were very, very young, around the same time that we also believed 
in Santa. And somewhere along the way, someone told us, you know, this whole writing letters to Santa thing uh, and ask him for stuff, we should probably let that go. And yet there's something that we hold on to about, well, even as I'm growing, I should still pray. But it's talking to an invisible God, and honestly, I kind of wonder if he hears. And then, honestly, it seems a bit random. It's like sometimes God chooses to answer my prayers, and other times he doesn't. And it just can leave us wondering, like, does this, does this make a difference? Like, does this work? Am I just wasting my time? And, and because I'm, I'm a pastor, people ask me to pray for things all the time. And I think sometimes people think I have some sort of unique access to God, which I can assure you I do not, okay? If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She will confirm that. But people ask me to pray all the time with all sorts of prayers. And some, some of them are really, really heavy. And some of them are not so heavy. But, but either way, of course, I'm, I'm happy to pray for them. It's like, what am I going to say? Like, no, nah, I, got, I got no time for that. It's just... But what's interesting is, you know, I pray and they pray. And then about a week or two later, I'll hear, hey, thank you so much for praying. You know, uh, uh, you know, everything worked out or my kid got in or my daughter is adapting well or my son got into that school. Uh, this conversation went well. So thank you so much for that prayer. And meanwhile, some of the heavier prayers... It's like, hey, the, the scans came back, and it's worse than we thought. We're going to have to figure out a treatment. Uh, my husband, he didn't get the job. I don't know what we're going to do. I'm still single. We lost the baby. There's more complications. And so at some point, it just makes sense to ask the question, okay, how does, how does this work? How does this whole prayer thing work? And if we're in one of those seasons where we're really feeling the pressure and the pain, we try to use the right words, the right approach, the right level of reverence, the, the right level of formality. We end up doing all these things to try and get God's attention, to get Him to do what we want Him to do. And if we're not careful, we end up treating God like some sort of cosmic vending machine where it's just like, you know, if I punch in the right code or I put in the right amount or I push the right buttons or I shake it just right, I might be able to get exactly what I want out of this. And for some of you, this is why you quit praying. Because you asked God for something sincerely and genuinely. And he didn't come through. And so you just decided prayer doesn't work. It's a waste of time. It just doesn't work, at least not for me. And you quit praying. For others, it may be the same reason you keep praying. Because you still haven't got what you want. And it's like, I am just going to keep asking and asking and asking. I mean, Jesus talked about this whole persistent widow thing. I'm just going to bug the snot out of God. But in the end, the results are still the same. Whether you quit praying because you didn't get what you wanted or you keep praying because you haven't gotten what you wanted, the result in the end is the same. You're going to be discouraged and you're going to be frustrated. But maybe it's because prayer was never intended to be this way. Maybe it's more than just bless me and guide me and keep me and give to me. Or maybe we're right but only partly right. Maybe we've made prayer too small. 
and we've missed out on what God has meant for it to be. That there's way more than we could experience when it comes to praying and in this conversation with God. And fortunately for us, there's this instance in where Jesus gets really, really clear on what prayer is. And I know for many of you, you've heard this passage hundreds, even thousands of times before, but you may have missed the big idea of what Jesus is trying to communicate about what we can truly experience, personally experience. And this is what Jesus says. This is in Matthew chapter 6, and he says, and he's talking to his disciples. He says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. They want to make prayer this public spectacle. And he says, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They wanted to be seen. They were. That's all they're going to get out of it. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father. Now, for some of you, depending on the relationship with your father, that word is a hang-up for you. Think the perfection of father. Your father. And this is Jesus' emphasis throughout this passage. Jesus is saying, we're not praying to some far-off deity. We are not praying to some indifferent deity in the sky. No, when we pray, we are praying to the one who think, think of everything you could possibly think of that would make up the perfection, the perfect father, the perfection of father, absolutely perfect. And he's your father. He's my father. Pray to your father. That is where you should begin. Pray to your Father who is unseen. And I'm so glad that Jesus says this. It should be so reassuring that Jesus actually saw what we see, and that is, he's like, I get it. God is not seen. God is invisible. Go into your room and close the door. Why? Because location matters. And you might go, I thought we could pray wherever we are. And you can, and we should. In fact, I definitely we should be in a pattern of prayer throughout our day about our life but that's not the point the point is in addition to those random prayers throughout the day these day-to-day prayers an intentional time and location it matters more than you may realize because a relationship is being built a relationship is happening that's why for example from the day we met through early marriage through raising four sons into adulthood I've always prioritized time with my wife, just the two of us. Even, like, one of the things, and it's a little harder with all the clocks being, like, digital and whatever, but, like, when they were a certain age and weren't quite smart enough yet, I'd go around the house and set all the clocks ahead an hour and then go sit back down and be like, all right, boys, about 10 minutes to bedtime. <laughs> you get where I'm going with this? So, so they're like, oh, okay, and they're going to bed an extra, we get an extra hour together. So, yes, we did bad parenting, to, to make sure we had time together. But we always prioritized time together, prioritized her time in our schedule, making sure there was time, just the two of us, in private, in the privacy of our home or behind closed doors. Why? Because a relationship is built, being built. A relationship is happening. And there are things that we can say and ways that we can connect and interact and engage with one another in privacy that we could and would never do beyond those closed doors. And sometimes doing absolutely nothing but just being with each other. And 33 years in, we're reaping what we sowed. We're reaping the benefit of that consistent annual and monthly and weekly, just daily, prioritized, intentional investment and in time together. And like that, 
when you're intentional to prioritize time, closed door time, to get alone with God, what you're saying is, Father, you matter to me, and I believe that I matter to you. I, I believe that I'm not alone when I close this door. I believe that you're here with me, and that when I close this door, you and I, I'm going to have a conversation with you. I believe you're with me in this room. I don't understand it. Logically, it seems impossible. And yet, you're the God that transcends space and time, who spoke the universe and all of the planets and life and humanity into existence. And if you can do that, then certainly you have the capacity to hear me. I mean, if man-made and woman-made things such as Google and social media and cellular networks and Siri and Alexa are able to track, see, hear, and know pretty much everything billions of us are individually doing and clicking and saying at any given moment, God, I believe you're at least a little bigger than that. In fact, that you could even hear and know my innermost thoughts. And for some of you here today, this may just be your biggest takeaway of the day. And that's just to simply begin prioritizing daily a time to power down or leave every single screen out of the room entirely and just close the door. You're going through life at 100 miles an hour. Every minute is planned and filled. And even if it isn't, you've got a screen in front of your face and maybe you pray here and there, but you don't have a time where you are silencing and pausing everything and just going, you know what, instead of trying to do one more task or more mindless scrolling that after all of a sudden an hour is gone or binging one more thing, you know, I'm going to make time to spend time with my Father. So when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, this isn't that somehow that God is just going to give you everything you ask and bless you, and there's going to be all these great things. That's not what he's saying. The word reward here actually means to pay back or to respond. That when we take something to our Heavenly Father, He responds. Again, just like any great relationship, when you have a concern, what do you do? You, you take whatever you're concerned with to that person you're in relationship with, and then they help carry that with you. Or you, you have a joy. You go to that person you're in relationship with. They celebrate that with you. They respond. And if it's a challenge, you face it together. And you keep doing this and doing this. And it keeps bringing you closer and closer together. And you've experienced this. When we consistently and frequently move towards someone like this in an earthly relationship, it naturally moves them closer to us. And the greatest reward isn't necessarily that a problem is solved, but that a relationship is built, and it grows, and it deepens. And when we move towards God, He moves towards us. And the reward, again, isn't necessarily that we get what we want. It's that we get a relationship with Him. Jesus continues, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Have you ever been around someone who, for them, it's like the longer that they pray or the more theological or formal the words, the more God's going to hear them. It's like 
Maybe it was that family member or someone you grew up in church with. They may be here with you today. Uh, you know, whoever it was, but there was that person. Maybe it was a small group, but inevitably they were called on to pray. And it was like, oh, get comfy because we're going to be here for a while. Okay? Jesus is saying, look, no matter how many words there are, no matter how Shakespearean they are, none of that matters. He says, do not be like them. For your father, there is that relationship again. Your father, he knows what you need before you ask him. Now, if you hear that and something in you goes, well, then if God knows what I need before I even ask him, what's the point? Like, like what, what's the purpose of praying? I mean, we pray. why pray at all if God already knows what we need? And if that thought has ever crossed your mind, then you're actually much closer to understanding and having a breakthrough in prayer the way Jesus taught it than you may have thought. He says, this then is how you should pray. And then he shares with us a prayer that, again, you may have heard hundreds of even thousands of times in your life, or you may be hearing it for the first time today, but whatever the case, just lean in like his first century audience did. They're hearing this for the first time because these words of Jesus 2,000 years ago help us understand what he really wants us to experience in prayer to make it personal. He again starts with relationship. Here's how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What that means is there is nothing in existence that compares to you. There is nothing, there is no thing, there is no one, there is nothing greater in all of time and space. That is who I'm addressing. Now, does God need you to tell him that? Is God going, ah, chucks, like don't go overboard. I mean, am I really? No. Who benefits in saying something like that? I do. Why? Because it puts in perspective everything else that I'm about to say. The Apostle Paul, later on, he would be writing to Christians in Rome, and he writes them this, if God is for us, come on, who or what could be against us? Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Which his audience that he was writing faced all of these things. Which could cause anyone to think, God doesn't care. He's not listening. He's not aware. He says, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death or life or angels or demons or present or future, nor any powers, nor height or depth or anything else in all of creation, nothing can or will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the one you are addressing when you pray. All-powerful, all-perfect, all-knowing and unchangeably in love with you by name. The one who transcends space and time and yet knows your name. He knows what you need before you ask him. And one way or another, he alone possesses what you need for this life and the next. So of course, hallowed be your name. That's the one I am coming to. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. We don't use the word kingdom a lot in our culture 
But Father, we live and exist in a world that seems irrevocably bent on tearing itself apart. We live amongst a humankind that seems irresistibly determined to tear one another apart. And it's like there's some overarching global power or movement, some overwhelming thing that is just behind driving all kingdoms and nations towards mutually assured destruction. And as I think about the next generation, as I think about your children and your future children, as I think about all those amazing small humans in our kids' life space, oh God, the kingdoms of the earth are only getting worse. What does the future hold for them if this does not change? So God, may your kingdom come. Which is to say, God, may we see one another as you see us. May your perfect love and your compassion and your justice replace the brokenness and darkness in this world and in my world. May your economy and the way things work in your eyes, the way you want them to work, we want your kingdom to come, your will, not the will of fallen men and fallen women to rule. And have you noticed that so far, In Jesus' example prayer, there has been nothing about me and nothing about you. Think about how different this is from so many of our prayers. Usually, it's, dear God, thank you for this day. Now that I've got that out of the way, bless me and keep me and help me out and give me this and take care of this and provide this for me. And because I think somewhere in the Bible it says if I pray this in Jesus' name, you have to do this for me. So in Jesus' name, amen. And how different, how different is Jesus' approach. And again, who does it benefit? God or me? Me. You. Because it, it centers and contextualizes everything I say next and it puts it into proper perspective. God, give us today our daily bread. And we think, oh, finally, we got to the request. But actually, it's not. It's actually about focusing us on God's provision and our dependence on Him. This is not just a needs request like, hey God, I need bread. This is saying, God, I recognize that I am entirely dependent on you. Today, tomorrow, the next day, I am dependent on you. And it's interesting that he uses the word daily because that is not the word we would use, especially not in America. In fact, I'll be honest, when I pray this line, I feel a little embarrassed because in my home, I've got this giant refrigerated box that I open up and LED lights come on and and it shines up all the food and I've got cabinets full of food. So I know this part of prayer includes food, but it's bigger than that. So for me, I usually play, I have an adaptation to this, it usually goes something like this. Father, give me today my daily bread and give me the wisdom, the wisdom in your heart to know how to steward the excess. This is my way of me personally saying in my prayer life, Heavenly Father, I recognize you have given me more than I need today. You've given me more than I need, which means you've, what you've given me is an all for me. You've given me enough that I can share. You've entrusted me with extra. So please help me to see it all as you see it and to see others as you see them and to share and to distribute how you would have me share and distribute. Otherwise, I might lose sight of who actually filled the refrigerator, who actually filled the cabinet. I might begin starting to trust in my ability that you gave me in the first place 
to fill them for the next five or six or seven days. I might start trusting in what I have or what I can do. Again, abilities that you gave me to begin with, and I might not be trusting in you, and my sense of security and trust might shift away from you to me or something else. And God wants our trust. And God wants our trust because it's about relationship with Him. And what the one thing that we all know is the one thing that is required for every good relationship is trust. Trust and perspective. So this is not just a request. This is a declaration of dependence. God, I am dependent on you for everything. And he continues, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And again, this looks like a request, but it's not. It's another declaration of God's perspective in our life because when we place the weight of our life and our eternity on what Jesus has done for us, and then part of living that out, how it works in God's kingdom, which we've already prayed we want to come on earth. If we pray that, then we actually have to live out as if we're part of that kingdom and his will for our lives, and forgiveness is central to that. Jesus taught repeatedly about this. One time Jesus was with his disciples, and Peter, one of my favorites, he speaks up. He says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus, let's say someone's wronged me. Let me, I'm just going to go ahead because I want to look good. I want to set the bar really, really high. Should I forgive them seven times? But Jesus did what he always did. He takes it to a whole other level. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. This can also be translated 70 times seven. So it's like, does that mean after the 71st or the 491st time, I'm off the hook? Like, you know what? I've been keeping track. You cross the line. I'm done. No more forgiveness for you. No soup for you. Jesus is saying, look, no. As many times, as many times as they sin against you, you should offer forgiveness to them. God has offered full forgiveness to you. How can you withhold that from someone else? When we pray something like this, it's saying, I need to offer as much forgiveness as God has offered me. How much forgiveness has God offered you? How much do you need? 100%. So God's offered full forgiveness. So Father, forgive me. This is what we're ultimately praying. God, Father, forgive me of all the ways I have sinned against you to the extent that I have forgiven those who have sinned against me. And that's a hard prayer. And it becomes a prayer of examination. It becomes an examination. Do I, ha- do I still hold bitterness towards somebody in my heart? Am I holding on to a grudge against someone in my life? See, when we pray this way, the way Jesus taught us to pray, We cannot ask God for forgiveness for the things that we've done if we're holding back forgiveness for the things that other people have done to us. Jesus continues, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And again, this looks like a request, but at the core, it's a confession. God, I need your help. I am prone to temptation. Every single one of us has something in our lives that we find tempting, appetizing or appealing that draws us in the opposite direction of our Heavenly Father, away from His good and perfect will for us and for our lives and our relationships, and to move towards something else, away from God. God, we need your help. I need your help to go in the opposite direction. God, I need your help to move past it, move around it, avoid this temptation. And we have all 
tried and failed on our own. We know that. We've all tried, tried and failed with various temptations. So when we say, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we're confessing, I cannot do it on my own. God, I need your help. Every day, you need to declare your dependence on him because we have an enemy bent on destroying us. His, he promises us the world, but all of his promises are lies. But God, he is very, very convincing. I need your help. So throughout this example prayer, what Jesus is teaching us is the most important thing in prayer is your posture to make it personal. Jesus is saying the way you view God, the way you position yourself before God makes all the difference. You, you have things that you want to ask God for, and that's okay. He wants that. I mean, He is the perfection of Father. He wants you to share it all with Him. I mean, oh, that you would consider Him worthy and willing and able to hear all of your joys and your thankfulness for what He's provided for you and how it's brought joy and happiness to your life and you're so grateful, as well as your innermost thoughts and anxieties and worries. I mean, isn't that ultimately what creates deep relationship with someone else? I mean, individuals who celebrate the wins with you and grieve the losses with you, even if they can do nothing to fix it, they're just there with you. When we face a challenge, just the fact that you have someone who will listen and care and wants to know the good, the bad, and the ugly, to truly know us and do life with us. And the more you do that with one another, with each passing week and month and year, you get closer and your relationship deepens and grows. It forms a connection and bond, and God wants that for you. He wants it with you. And, and the beauty and the genius of what Jesus has taught us about prayer is that it will actually lead us to the thing that we actually want the most. Because Jesus is telling us prayer will direct you and direct your life towards God's will for you. And I promise you, at the end of the day, of everything that we could possibly want or need, the thing that we want the most if God is who Jesus says he is, the, most th the best thing we want is his will for our lives. The Heavenly Father who knows us, who personally cares about us, who knows all the intricacies of all the little things that connect to everything now and everything that sets the direction of our future, who knows what we need and what we should want the most is his will for our lives. Because honestly, I'm not that smart. He knows everything and how it connects, past, present, that will affect my future. I want the one with that vantage point who is for me, who loves me, and knows my name. That's the one I want calling the shots in my life. God, your will is greater than mine. Thy will, your will is greater than mine because I'm not that smart and I need you. God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to depend on you. And even when I have everything in my life that I think I could want or need, I am going to declare I am just as dependent on you now as I am when I have felt need. I need you, and I want your will to be done in my life. I want to invite the band on up. You see, plan consistent, intentional times to pray, the way Jesus has laid it out for us. This is huge in making your faith personal. 
I'm, and I'm telling you, if you're not already doing this, your next step is to start today. You see, plan consistent, intentional time to pray the way Jesus lays out. This is your next step. You, t- you need to take this next step and make it a priority. Otherwise, I can almost guarantee that your faith will become life- lifeless, it will become uneventful, and it will become boring. In fact, when people share with me that they feel this way, my first question is this. Tell me about your prayer life and tell me where you're serving others. Because nearly 100% of the time, one or both of those things are anemic or non-existent. Prayer is a very personal opportunity to make room for God and what He wants to do in your life, especially if you're someone that would say, you know, I believe that I'm going to heaven when I die, but honestly, I don't really feel a big connection with God. I mean, my Christian life, honestly, there's just not that much to it. I mean, I just, I'm basically just trying to be a good person at work or at school or in my life. I don't really feel like it's making that big of a difference in my life. That is a big yellow flag. You need to do something about that. You need to do something about your apathy when it comes to prayer. It's like, I tried praying in the past and it didn't really work out. And so you become apathetic towards it. You don't really get excited about the idea. It sounds boring. But that apathy is likely preventing you from experiencing what your Heavenly Father wants you to experience with Him and Him through you. So to help us experience prayer the way Jesus taught, I just want to give you one simple step just over the next week. Here's what I want to challenge all of us to do. I just want you to block time, preferably in the morning before the chaos of the day takes over and you're exhausted at night. But to block time to pray in private and I want you to pray for yourself last. You're going to want to pray for yourself. There's going to be things that you want to ask God for. There's going to be needs that you want to put before Him and you should do that. But pray for yourself last. And if you find that you struggle to know who or what to pray for other than yourself, that will be a signal. An indication that you've not seen prayer the way Jesus has taught us to pray. And you're you're missing out. So pray in private. Pray for yourself last. And if you do that, if if we all did that, if we would all make room for God and what He wants to do in our life, Imagine what would happen in and through all of us if we began to make room for him and say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. Thy is greater than mine. So would you have your way in my life that I might experience the amazing closeness and personal left, personalness of a relationship with you? Let me pray for us. Father, you are so great. And the last few years, it just feels like it's hit after hit after hit where the darkness just seems to be intensifying. Divisions that, quite honestly, that have been there for a long time have been amplified. Our brokenness, our fallen, God, everything right now, it just seems so amplified. And there are days where we just wonder, are you still there? Are you still in control? And then what we 
face in our own lives, Father. I just ask for every single one listening to my voice and for myself. Please help us have your perspective of the people around us, the things around us. We cannot do this without your help. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our life. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.